Did you have did you have something? Well I got a little something. No, oh, okay. <coughs> you sure? I feel like that. Yeah. I, I don't know, um, this is not much of something, maybe it's something, but I just when we were worshiping I sensed um, the Lord's joy coming into the room. Mm. And I could hear like you know uh, uh, a fife whistle. Mm-hmm. I could almost hear like an extra musical instrument that yeah. was playing over the top of us. Oh. And it was like a whistle. And I just heard it in the spirit, like it was in the heavenlies. So I just felt like uh, the Lord wanted to release his joy Come on. to our group here. So yes. that's, what, that's it. <laughs> Amen. Can I get a little more green cord here? That's all you got, dude. Is it? Oh, man. <laughs> it's going to be rough. That's all you got, bro. <laughs> well, it's Think of it as a, a restraint. That's, that's how I'm thinking of it, and that's why I don't like it. <laughs> All right. Uh, ooh, can we turn off a little less reverb, maybe? Oh, dude. thank you, man. So it's great to great to be with everybody today. Um, this room that we're in is uh, it's great to be back here worshiping, and uh, this room is maybe of all the rooms in the world my number one like encounter God room in the world. If I think about historically, um, because we had a number of gatherings here, um, 2007, 2008, 2009, that really changed my life uh, dramatically. And um, I'm going to share about 10 days. I want to kind of set the table for us. But I also want to share some about this place and about this campus. And I'll start with the historical and then I'll get more into the modern. So, um, as you all know, this, this campus was founded by D.L. Moody. Um, he was like the Billy Graham of his era. And uh, Moody returned from England, where he had essentially become world famous, um, doing these enormous evangelistic crusades all over the British Isles. He was there for two years. And he returned, and instead of going back to Chicago... He came back here. This is where he was born. And as a young man, he couldn't wait to get out of here, you know. Um, I remember I was a youth pastor in Santa Fe, and, you know, I'd talk to the kids, and they were all like, man, I can't wait to get out of here, you know, like 17. I'm like, where are you going to go? I don't know, like, anywhere, maybe east, maybe west, who knows. Then I, we moved to New England, and this kid was filling up our car with gas, and, hey, how you doing, man? Oh, man, I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> Like, I guess it doesn't matter where you're from when you're 17 or whatever. You can't wait to leave. Um, so Moody was no exception. He left. He went to Boston. In Boston, he, um, he got saved um, while he was selling shoes. And, um, and then moved to Chicago because there was more opportunity in Chicago. Eventually decided that business, while he was very good at business, that God wanted him to give everything and go into full-time ministry, which he did. Um, and then, uh, you know, did the travels to England, returned here. And when he came back, he kind of had two things on his heart. And uh, one was to start a school for girls. And uh, so this was a high school or a secondary school for girls. And especially it was for girls, young women who couldn't afford it. It's called the Northfield Ladies Seminary. Um, 
And um, so that was the, one of the main things that happened here. But the second thing was the conferences. And uh, the conferences were world famous. Some of you have heard of like the Keswick movement. Northfield was like the, the in England, Keswick. Northfield was that same kind of a place in America. This is really an encounter center where people would come out for the summers. They'd a lot of times camp on the lawn and just, you know, engage in um, hearing Bible teaching, Bible study, prayer. Um, many, many hymns and songs were, were, were written here or written for the conferences. A blessed Assurance is one that you probably know. Uh, people like Fanny Crosby, um, A.J. Gordon, uh, Andrew Murray, F.B. Meyer, uh, different people like that that even today, you know, we may know their names, were people that came and taught and ministered here. Because Moody was like, you know, the Billy Graham of the day, right? If Billy Graham were to call you and be like, hey, you know, Jonathan, come down to North Carolina and I want you to come minister with me. You know, I would be like, I wouldn't ask any questions. I'd just hang up and just go, you know. Billy Graham called. And it was the same thing with Moody. You know, he had that, just that kind of a convener's um, heart, that kind of stature. And so people would just come out and minister here. And so Moody didn't do most of the ministering. He just mainly, it was like he would just welcome people into his home. And uh, some of the biographies I've read, they, they kind of, you know, they, they speak about this place like it's the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're like, why are people so drawn here? And they try to explain it. But at the peak, there was a direct train from New York City to Northfield. Like you could come here direct. There were 30 trains a day coming here during the conferences in the summers. And so this was just a major hub for the global church with people coming from all over the world. So this is famous, kind of the historically, there's the school, there's the conferences, which are really in that renewal, Holy Spirit, um, Bible training, but, but, but really that, that sense of like spiritual renewal, personally dedicating people, people dedicating their lives to the Lord, to service. Um, and then the third thing is missions. And that's primarily through, um, in, in 1886, there was a conference. It was one of the Northfield conferences, but it actually occurred at the Mount Hermon campus, which is about three miles away. And it was a conference for, for college-age men. And God just moved here in, in this conference, and they ended up launching what became known as the Student Volunteer Missions Movement. Now, at that time, in 1886, there had been two, less than 2,000 overseas missionaries sent from America. In less than 40 years, there were 20,000 student volunteers sent. So ten, tenfold increase. And of course, they were part of a larger movement of sending that included many others. Um, so that's the kind of impact that's actually come from this place, these conferences. Um, and uh, so that's just some of the historical background. Um, of where we are. And of course, D.L. and his wife are buried over here on the hill. This hill is called Round Top. Um, Round Top was one of the places that people would go. One of the biographies I read said, if only the trees could speak. And what they meant was that people would go out there, pray, give their lives to the Lord, give their lives to missions. It was just like an, kind of an encounter zone. And if you look down the hill, you'll see this clump of trees here. Those are called the missionary pines. And there's like 20-some trees. Each one represents a young woman who went overseas as a missionary, gave her life to missions from this campus. So this place is 
It's just got a lot of stuff that's happened here. Unto death. Unto death, yeah. Some were literally martyred and others, you know, sowed their lives in, um, you know, in a foreign field. So, um, so that's some of the background here. Uh, why we got involved here. In 2005, uh, the, the folks who owned the place, Northfield Mount Hermon, or NMH, they had two campuses. They consolidated all the students to one. And they put this campus on this up for sale, I believe, for about thirty million. And so God uh, brought us here. Really, really cool story. I'll just share that. I was uh, <laughs> I was actually doing a fall ten days uh, in my church with just a few people. God had just said, just do it small, just get a few people together. And um, the Lord spoke to me in the midst of He said, call 120 people to pray for ten days leading up to Pentecost. So I was just like, okay, that's kind of in my calling. Uh, I can do that. And uh, But I was like, I don't know anyone here. And so I started to get out and meet people. I started to get involved with this group called the New England Alliance. And uh, met, I, I got involved with the Global Day of Prayer, Pastor George Small's um, effort. And so I'm, I'm working and, and we're starting to move forward, but I still don't know where we're going to do this 10 days of prayer or how I'm going to get 120 people. And so I was like, God, you got to give me someone to help me because... I know I can't do this on my own. So one Saturday, I'm working on this paper on, uh, it's actually on revival history in Western Mass. I was writing about Jonathan Edwards, who Northampton, if you know, is about 20 minutes to the south. That's where the first Great Awakening really started. So I'm writing this paper, starting to work on it, starting to research it, and I get a call. And the call is all about Western Massachusetts, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, and this guy named David who I'm supposed to meet, or at least talk to on the phone. So what had happened to David that morning, uh, David lives here, and he's actually been praying over this campus since 1986, which was the 100-year anniversary of the student volunteer movement. So at that point, that was in 2007, that was 21 years of praying. Um, And he had gotten a newspaper that morning, and it said there was going to be a 10-day American Idol camp, a camp based on the TV show American Idol for Kids. And they were going to meet like right down there next to Moody's grave. And so David was just like, American Idol. He's like, no. He's like, Moody would be rolling in his grave. He said, no way. Um, And so then he just prays this prayer. He says, God, could you do your own 10-day thing at Northfield? So 30 minutes later, he gets this phone call from a guy he hasn't spoken to in six years. And he says, hey, there's this guy, Jonathan Frizz in eastern Massachusetts. He wants to do 10 days of prayer. Do you think that you might be willing to help him out? So David says, help him? I even know where we're going to do it. (laughs) So David introduces me to this campus and to Moody, and we come here for the first time, and everything's empty, and I'm like, how can this all be empty? And uh, this is in 2007. And uh, I'm praying, God, you know, like those, those scriptures in Isaiah that talk about the the desolate cities or the empty, uninhabited cities. I'm like, what is an uninhabited city? It's kind of like this. There's nothing, there's no one here. So I was like, Lord, make them inhabited again and just walking around the campus. So, you know, their NMH is gracious enough to want to work with us. So we, we are, you know, making progress on our retreat. We're planning this 10 days. We're having faith for 120 to come. 
And uh, as we're doing this, we just kind of hit a bump in the road. It's actually a pretty significant bump, more like a wall. Um, and uh, the person we're working with emails me and says, hey, deal's off, buddy. We're not going to do this. She didn't say buddy. She's, you know, I'm just, I'm, but she said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And I was, I was totally devastated because I just knew, like, God wanted us to do this. I was like, Lord, how can this be happening? I know you want this to be here. It's so clear. And I was so, you know, upset by this. I literally fell asleep. I was like, gone, passed out. And, uh, and I woke up. When I woke up, I just sensed the presence of the Lord. And uh, I was like, oh, Lord's here. Uh, so I better respond to them now that I'm, you know, feeling better, feeling some peace. So I send this, this reply, and they respond back a few days later, hey, you know what, thank you for sharing what you shared. You know, you're back on. Let's move forward. And I, you know, sigh this sigh of relief. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I knew you wanted it here. Oh, I was right. And then I get an email a little later, and it's, um, it says, oh, one of our staff people wants you to see this. Um, it's this letter written by D.L. Moody. So I'm like, okay, I read the letter. The letter was written in 1880, and it was an invitation to Northfield to come for 10 days of prayer based on Acts chapter 1, which is the upper room, 120. And that it was we researched it, we found out that was their first conference they ever had here. First of the Northfield conferences. And they dedicated uh, the campus, especially East Hall, at the end of that. And um, so I said to David, I said, I think we're on to something here. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but I think we're on to something. Some of you have heard me share some of these stories a few times, so you have to forgive me. Um, but these are amazing, you know, just testaments to, to just the power of God. So two years the place had been closed, and God brings back a group of people who know nothing about this history to do exactly what they did when they started it. So I was thinking, huh, okay, cool. Then we did the actual 10 days, and I saw, really experienced for the first time, the potential of what this vision God had given me was supposed to be. Like I mentioned, I, I was completely transformed. I want to just share my first night, you know, I, I had some weird ideas. And one of them was I didn't know I was supposed to lead things. Because I thought, like, God would lead everything. But I didn't quite get that I was, in, you know, like, the extent to which I was involved in that. So it was good. You know, I wanted God to be in charge. It's a good heart. But just wasn't clear on, like, how I was supposed to, you know, be a conduit for that. So, <laughs> the first night we're here, something happened. One, you know, I think I only had one kid at the time, but something happened with Gabe. I had to go take care of something. I come back into the room, um, and I don't come from a back, you know, my background wasn't super charismatic or anything. So, I walk in the room, and all chaos is broken loose. And there's uh, this black woman lying on the floor, rolling around, back and forth. And I'm like very analytical. I'm like, oh, that's holy rolling. I've read about that. <laughs> then I walk in a little more and they see a woman over here and she's laughing like a hyena. And I'm like, hmm, this must be the holy laughter. I've, I've read about that too. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, we need to get control of this. Like, this is getting out of control. So I'm like, where's David? You know, where's David? He'll help me. No, no, no. David is in la-la land over here on the ground, just, just out with Jesus. I'm like, oh, I can see he's not going to be any help. 
And uh, my mentor, Jeff Marks, is the one who's causing all this trouble. He's anointing them with oil, and then craziness is happening, and so I can just see that I've got a problem on my hands. <laughs> so graciously, uh, I just decide, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything. <laughs> And uh, even though I'm really uncomfortable, and then that night I go to bed and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Lord, your people are weird, but I really love them. <laughs> anyway, and then as we get, um, as we get into ten days, and as we begin doing it. Uh, by the way, Steve Sutton was here. You know Steve? Steve Sutton from uh, Horizon. Okay, yeah, he went and became a missionary after this sometime. So anyway, um, sorry, as an aside. But uh, <laughs> after this, like, as we begin to enter into this season of seeking God, even though we had come from so many different backgrounds, God begins to pour out this real sweet unity on us. And I'm like, my calling is John 17. And I realize, I'm, wow, we're actually experiencing John 17. We're experiencing a level, a degree of being one as the father and son are one. And we come from all these different backgrounds. I mean, racially, ethnically, denominationally. We were from all over the park. But God was knitting us together. That was the dominant theme. And then some of those things I I thought were weird, you know, by halfway through, I'm like, oh, I'm starting to do that weird stuff too. Not the rolling. I haven't done that yet. I'm still, I'm hoping to get that, the gift of work. No. But, but it was just a real growing experience of like, oh yeah, Holy Spirit doesn't always uh, draw within the lines and that's okay. Um, so that was the, the first 10 days of prayer that we had here. And we had a total of uh, four of them here in this room. So many, so many memories, so many stories. And it was really uh, where this 10 days movement really began to start. Now, I knew in my heart this was supposed to be kind of something that was a national and a global thing, but at the time, it was just us here, you know? And so it's cool to be here 10 years later and to see, you know, just a little bit of how that vision has grown. It's really been the Lord. It's where we had over 30 cities engaging last year and folks in America and also in Africa. And so anyway, just to, just to kind of give a little context of what's going through my heart is just sitting in the room. Um, I want to just share briefly um, the vision of 10 days because uh, I just wanted to, I want us all to kind of have that you know in us and, and we've got a lot of different people here not everyone's um, been super involved but just to give give the vision so that we can all have that and then we're going to just be touching on a lot of different themes that, that are tangent tangential to that that touch on that vision so Ten days started out of really this cry that came from Jesus' prayer in John 17, uh, where Jesus prays, let them be one as we are one. Um, And if you think about that for a minute, it's a really kind of a scandalous, troubling prayer. Um, Let, if you just break it down into its parts, let them, so let, let human beings, my disciples, be one, be united, together, get together as we are one, as the Father and the Son are one through the Holy Spirit. How can people be one the way that God is one with God? Does that even, that doesn't even make sense, you know, for that to be possible. Um, 
And uh, Jesus makes it worse because he makes it clear this is not some prayer that he expects to be answered in heaven. For one thing, you don't really pray for people in heaven or for things in heaven because, you know, we usually pray, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) Not make things nice in heaven, Lord. He's kind of got that covered, right? Um, So he's praying for his church on earth to be one as he and the, or as the, as he and the Father are one, so it's this incredible degree of unity. It's a here and now prayer. And as I looked through church history, I was just seeing, I don't think that this is really happening. You know, maybe you'll, you, you see a little glimpse or a glimmer here and there, uh, but that's not the dominant reality of the history of the church that we've been one as the Father and the Son are one. And so then I just had this very simple insight um, that I'd never thought of before. You know how it's funny, like you read something over and over and over and you don't see something and then all of a sudden for some reason God opens your eyes to see it. But it was just this, that Jesus gets what he prays for and that the prayer is prophetic. So if Jesus is asking for it, and if you think about it, it's his dying wish, right? I mean, even prisoners get to make a dying wish and this is the Son of God crying out to his Father who loves him, let them be one as we are one. We can expect the Father is going to answer and fulfill that prayer. And because we're involved in that, we can expect that he's going to have a major role for us to play. Obviously, we need his empowerment, but it's going to be in partnership with us that that prayer gets fulfilled. Let them be one as we are one. And so out of this, I was just realizing, man, Lord, where the church is at now, because I had done this thing in Santa Fe, where I lived in 2004, where I, read, I went around, I visited like 50 churches. And uh, so I had a pretty good sense of what was going on with the pastors and, and leaders of the churches in Santa Fe. And um, it wasn't John 17. So I was like, man, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get from <laughs> from this to John 17, but can I be a part of it? You know, like... Could you help show me how I can be a part of it? I'm like, we've got to do something different. I know it has to be something different from what we're doing because what we're doing now is not helping us to get there. And um, so I went on, I was like, I don't know how to do this, how to seek God, but I just decided out of Daniel 10, I'd do this 21-day Daniel fast. So I sought him in this fast, which was like the hardest fast I've ever done. It wasn't hard in the sense of like, you know, not eating because you're doing the Daniel thing, you're eating something. But just like, it just felt like God lifted his hand off of me and his presence. Like, it just felt, I felt like kind of like alone, you know? And uh, I was like, Lord, where'd you go? What's, <laughs> what's up with this? And um, so it's, it's, it's difficult fast. And at the end of it, like the second to last day, I just felt like his hand come back and I was like, wow, thank you. Sorry to hear his voice again. And um, um, and so I was just so grateful for that. Lord started to tell me a few things. I've been thinking about some things. He's like, nope, don't do that. That's a bad idea. I was like, okay, good. Good to know. And um, the last day I was like, all right, this is it. It's my chance, my time, the 21st day, time to hear the Lord and uh, just see what he has. And so I went on this walk praying. And first the Lord just started speaking to me and was saying, hey, Jonathan, you know, you're calling is to be someone who goes before someone greater to prepare a way for them. And I was like, oh, cool. And he gave me some examples in the Bible of that ministry. 
um, like um, Moses and how Moses prepared the way for Joshua and uh, how Jonathan in the Bible prepared the way for David to be king and um, also how Elijah prepared the way for Elisha who had the greater anointing and then he brought up John, John the Baptist and Jesus. So I was like, okay. I'm like, who is this greater? Is this like Jesus? Is this about the Lord's return? Is this for another person, another generation? I was just kind of, you know, confused by it. And um, then I went, walked a long, long way, and uh, wasn't hearing from the Lord. Honestly, I'll be honest. I wanted Him to like um, send me an angel, and I thought maybe I would like, you know, if I just really waited long enough, <laughs> I would like talk Him into it. And I was like. Eventually, my legs were getting really sore. And uh, so I was like, Lord, however you want to speak to me, just speak. And as I was walking back to my house, um, the Lord just hit me with this phrase, just in my spirit. I heard this phrase, Babylon refuses to mourn, but my people will mourn before I return. So it's a mysterious phrase. You know, sometimes we're like, God, why do you speak to us in weird ways? And... A lot of times when he speaks in a mystery, you know, it says in the Proverbs that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to seek it out. So this is kind of a cryptic phrase, and it's an invitation into seeking out something of his mysteries. Babylon refuses to mourn, but my people will mourn before I return. So I didn't know what that meant. It sounded kind of a... Apocalyptic, a little bit. <laughs> it's actually a reference to Revelation chapter 18. Uh, I was sharing with a, a Catholic brother who had been involved in 10 days and he knew about the unity piece. And I was, you know, he never heard me share the story. He's like, Whoa, I didn't know about the apocalyptic backstory to 10 days. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> so um, this phrase, Babylon refuses to mourn. Then I, I was like, well, Lord, when do you, what do you want me to do? He said, call my people to 10 days of fasting and mourning and prayer from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. So it's during this period called the Days of Awe on the biblical calendar. And one interesting thing about the Days of Awe is that these fall feasts are actually prophetically pointing. There's three fall feasts, uh, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And prophetically, they all speak to the return of Christ. And so I was like, wow, that's interesting. I knew a little bit about them. Um, and then I was like, well, God, who is this for? And I was thinking, it's probably for Santa Fe. It's probably for the city, New Mexico, where I lived. And he said, no, it's bigger. And I'm like, well, maybe for the whole state. He's like, it's bigger. I'm like, okay. So I saw this map that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was getting very, very alarmed by this map. <laughs> And uh, then um, the Lord, so I was like, I don't know what I've gotten into here. And then the Lord showed me uh, this picture of a city. And I knew that in this city they had stopped everything for 10 days. People weren't going to work. They weren't going to school. They were just seeking the face of God. And um, so I, I saw this city. It was just covered in glory. The glory of God was so thick over the city you really couldn't see through it. I knew this place would never be the same. And it was like the city had become a picture of the throne room where it was just worship happening. And uh, these two questions came out of my spirit. I was like, God, how would you respond if a city sought you this way? 
You know, earlier we were saying that song, draw near to me, for I have drawn near to you, right? So there's a, when we draw near to God, it creates a reaction from Him. He set it up that way. <laughs> like He says in Zechariah, you know, return to me, and I'll return to you. So it's like, God, how would you respond if a city saw you in this way? What would be your response? It would be commensurate somehow. If it was extravagant, you know, devotion to God, it would be an extravagant response. I don't, that's all I know. Um, secondly, I asked him, I was like, Lord, because I remembered my John 17 obsession. I said, Lord, is this how you want to fulfill Jesus' prayer of John 17? And uh, I didn't realize at the time, but John 17, 22 speaks about how Jesus has given us his glory, right? So I'm giving them my glory so that they can be one. And the city was just covered in glory. So I know when the, I know that, you know, at least that much. Um, and then finally, the Lord was like, you're also going to pray for 10 days leading up to Pentecost this year. So that year was 2004 into 2005. A month later, I was with uh, John Robb, who um, is kind of an international prayer leader. He was a friend of mine from Santa Fe. And uh, at the time, he worked for World Vision. Now he works for something called the International Prayer Council. And John shared with us this vision for the Global Day of Prayer that was happening that year for the first time on Pentecost Sunday, engaging uh, over 100 million people around the world. And I was like, whoa, God told me to pray for 10 days leading up to that. That's happening this year. That's amazing. They were also calling for 10 days of prayer leading up to Pentecost that year. So I just took that as kind of just a huge confirmation. Like, hey, this thing really is the Lord. This is something that God really wants to see happen. And honestly, I'd never had anything like that happen in my life before. So I concluded, this must mean that revival is coming to America this year <laughs> and um, so that's that's the vision that's kind of the origins the vision for 10 days um, just real quick 10 days is uh, set in the fall feast so it has that sense of kind of a, a historical biblical scriptural Jewish feast you may notice that most Gentiles don't celebrate um, the fall feast so there's really kind of an element of getting back to our our roots there. Um, it's an annual thing. This is not a once-off thing that we invite people to do, um, you know, one time and, okay, that was fun. Now it's done. But it's actually like a rhythm that we think God wants to put in the church, an annual rhythm. It's something that happens in many different locations. So a lot of times people are like, oh, they almost think like um, that I want to be at every one. Or that, like, you know, like, and I understand it's just, it's confusing, right, if you don't know, but, like, oh, are you going to be there? I'm like, no, I'm not going to be there because I'll be somewhere else. I'll be somewhere. But what we want to see is not, you know, kind of like one person go place to place, but we want to see citywide churches taking ownership of their own 10 days and uh, doing it in their own city. Because we can't, you know, no one person can be in all these cities. And so, likewise, we don't usually try to grow organizationally. Our real model is, is to grow in a, with a decentralized organization where we connect relationally with people who are already doing the work um, in their cities. Okay? Ten days is not really congregational. It's more geographical. 
So we want to engage, like a lot of times churches are like, can we do 10 days? It's like, sure, get all the other churches around you together and do it. But sometimes they're just thinking, oh, we just want to do it in our congregation. That's fine. I have, I have no problem with that. That's totally fine to do. I've done that before. It's just not kind of the fullness of the vision. What we really want to see is many churches in a geographical area coming together. So we often say it's for citywide churches. Um, the big idea of 10 days is stopping a city. Okay, That's like the, that's the goal, <laughs> if you will. And where I've seen people do that, I've never seen a city do that. Where I've seen people do that, you see much, much, much greater fruit and transformation in their lives versus just coming to a night here or there. Um, if you come to a night, if you come to a day, you know, like a little bit here and there, like there's an, there's an impact. Anytime we're around God, it affects us. But the greatest impact is when people really consecrate the time and stop in order to do this. Um, and ultimately, we want to see cities stop. Incidentally, biblically, it's just an aside, the real example of this is Nineveh, right? Mm-hmm. The city of Nineveh. They stop everything. And even the animals are fasting, right? Man, I don't want to make my dog fast. She would be mad at me. <laughs> She'd be like, what is going on? She does this like little noise I'd, if I forget to feed her. So anyway, they, they were really serious there. Um, and in Nineveh, we see the whole city respond, and we see how powerful God's response is. So check this out. This is really cool. If you go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, they have the same readings every year. And one of the readings is the book of Jonah, right? Every year. And so somehow this timetable is in God's heart to get that kind of a, rea- of a response from people. Now think about too this. Think about this. When Jesus came the first time, was he happy with how people responded to him? Did it go well? The short answer is no. Right? He weeps over Jerusalem. They missed they missed their chance, you know? Like their Messiah had come and they missed it. But what does he say? He says, You know, woe to these cities. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but one greater than Jonah is here. So there's a sense where the response of Nineveh was something Jesus wanted to see from the people. But what were they doing? They were chasing after the miracles and the signs and, oh, feed us. And <laughs> So all that is good, but it's meant to draw them into this kind of a Nineveh-type repentance response, and that never happened. So I'm just saying, like, if Jesus came the first time and that was what he was looking for from cities, could it be that he's still looking for that same kind of response from cities today? Uh, Ten Days is really driven by John 17. There's a number of key um, elements, and we're going to hit on them. John 17 is not the only thing, but John 17 is really a, a major focal point. Um, it's driven in that both in... Um, Ten Days has elements of both horizontal and vertical intercession related to John 17. So we're asking God, fulfill Jesus' prayer, but by coming together, we're horizontally interceding. Intercession is where you, you, know, you do something for some, on behalf of another, right? So we can pray to God on behalf of someone else, but we can also intercede and enable one another uh, to enter into something.
Um, so it's breaking down walls, both by prayer, by the Spirit, but also by just us going out, loving each other, being with each other. Um, ten days is a flexible framework. So there's so many different ways to do 10 days. We love improvisation. We love new frameworks. Sometimes people are like, hey, is it okay to do it this way? And I'm like, I've never thought of that. Yes, do it. Um, and uh, not that everything is a good idea, um, but, but that tends to be what we, we want to see different kinds of frameworks and structures set up. And um, so it's kind of like a blank canvas that people can draw on in their area. And, and you can merge different elements. You can bring in evangelism, you can bring in big meetings, you can bring in all kinds of different things into 10 days. And then 10 days is a tool or a strategy to bring transformation. So it's definitely a tool to bring transformation to your city um, that's holistic. It's a tool. It's not like the silver bullet, but it's something that God can use as a catalytic season to launch you into a new place, right? to launch you into something new. And that's what we see happen over and over for cities and individuals. It's like it raised, it just kind of like raises your level, brings you to a different plane. And then in the, in the season after that, you can learn how to walk at that level. I remember um, we, 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 out of uh, doing 10 days here, we started launching Houses of Prayer in New England. And I remember you know, going to prayer meetings and it got to a point where I was like, wow, our level of prayer is like what it is at the 10 days every time we come in here. And to me, that was a big deal. Because, <laughs> you know, the experience that I had had before was kind of unique and, and powerful. And I realized, wow, we're able now to sustain that level in the spirit every day that we could only before sustain by really, you know, concerted effort and, and really going for it consecration and so that was cool and that's what we want to see happen in cities too and then finally um, 10 days is a prayer meeting right it doesn't have to be that complicated <laughs> it's a time to seek God together um, and um, yeah and so in conclusion that's just kind of the summary um, we're going to be hearing a lot of different uh, things that, that tie into that and, and relate to um, the vision for 10 days but that's just a little bit of a summary um, of what God's been doing here at Northfield, the history here, and uh, the 10 days vision, and um, what what it is and what it's for. So, um, I'm just going to pray and close. Sure, that'd be great. Go ahead and stand up. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you so much. We just say we love you. And uh, we bless you. Father, we just pray, uh, Lord, be speaking to our hearts right now, Lord, even as you're moving to refresh us, God. We just pray that you would envision us, Lord. Show us what you have for us, Lord. What you have for our cities, Lord, our towns, our families, Lord, our nations. Um, God, the different things that you want to put in us during this time, Lord, connect us relationally with one another. Lord, knit us together as your body, Lord, we're each part is um, serving the others, Lord, and providing grace and virtue to them by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Thank you, Jesus.